It's a beautiful bridge. <laughs> and you blew it. <laughs> okay, go to Dolls Stephen. Stephen Mayne here. I'm a, a journalist and a shareholder activist. Started Crikey back in the day. Uh, like to go around to annual meetings and ask questions and run for a few boards and generally rabble rouse to keep the bastards honest. Very nice to meet you, Stephen. I've been reading you for a long time. Right. Okay. <laughs> we did one of these about 13 years ago, uh, Cam. Yeah, you and I yeah. did. And um, what I wanted to say first, Stephen, is you've been an inspiration. I started the podcast network uh, in 2004, and I, and I was very much inspired in doing so by what you did with Crikey. Um, I think you were uh, uh, somebody who, particularly my generation, look up to and admire for your efforts to create uh, a new media company and a new kind of narrative in Australia. So I just wanted to start off by uh, saying thank you for your work. I know it was many years ago now for you, but uh, I think it was an incredibly important uh, moment in Australia. And I, and I look at things like Get Up Today and the work that they do, and, and I think there's a direct line I can draw between that and the work that you did at Crikey, and certainly what I've spent the last 15 years of my life doing owes a lot to your leadership and, and inspiration. So... I just wanted to get that little bit of um, fellatio out of the way, and now we can talk about other other issues. Well, I mean that's that's very nice of you, Cam. I mean, Crikey was a for me it was a five year endeavour, but I'm really proud to be still writing for it today, uh, 15 years after after selling it. There's a lot more competition in the space now, but yeah, certainly we we moved early. It took a team of, of brave people to have the energy to, 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 to keep the content going, you know, tilting at windmills and taking on the powerful and that sort of stuff. So, um, and uh, yeah, look, it was a great ride and uh, I'm really so proud. It's now 20 years of Crikey. Wow. Congratulations. That's a, that's a huge achievement. Yes. Well, last 15 hasn't been me, but I sold it to the right people in Eric Beecher and he's, he's grown yeah. and developed it. And it's now, it's now a lot more professional than the, the sort of the spare bedroom wild ride in my day. But uh Look, you know, it's uh, it's it's still uh, it's still great, and um, and I'm so glad there's other publications, you know, whether it's uh, um, you know, the Guardian, uh, which is which has popped up as well, which is probably the biggest competitor now to Crikey and to, to everyone else. But look, there's more and more in the space, and uh, that's good to see. Whereas I still run the podcast network from a spare bedroom, so that's the difference <laughs> between us, one of many. All right, I'll uh, shut up now and throw over to Tony, who's going to ask you much more intelligent uh, questions and talk about much more intelligent topics. Well, thanks, thanks, Cam. Uh, yeah, I I, uh, I probably read you most these days, Stephen, in the Eureka Report. So just to put some context around that. And uh, I, I want to refer our listeners, if they haven't already, to listen to last week's Money Cafe podcast that uh, you did with James Kirby. And I think that, that would have been the 28th of the 5th because it went into some really great detail on the, the capital raisings that are happening now and the mechanics of them and, and how retail shareholders aren't getting the – well, they're getting the rough end of the pineapple, really. So – uh, I, I did. I did want to talk around that topic, but but perhaps no need to go over the ground you covered there. I, I did chuckle to myself when I listened to that podcast. I, I think James, you had James Kirby on the ropes there for a while. I think because he just didn't realise how uh, how much 
there was a problem with these retail cap with retail capital raisings that was going on, and uh, and him being the uh, the uh, financial editor for the Australian, I think the dollar signs were rolling through his eyes as he he realised he probably wouldn't uh, he might lose some advertising from the the companies you were talking about, Flight Centre and NAB and and some of those other big companies. So well well done for that one. Yeah. Um, but maybe you could tell us about your portfolio. I think you call it the the largest smallest portfolio in the world is that right yeah so it's about uh, 500 stocks um, average stakes worth about 40 or 50 dollars I put it together after I sold crikey um, sort of 2006 2007 uh, primarily as a shareholder activism tool I wanted to be aware of what companies were doing and I wanted to be able to go to their AGMs if need be and also write to them as a shareholder so I wanted to have legal status to engage with the companies from a shareholder activist point of view. Um, and then basically when the GFC came along, I mean, um, all these capital raisings happened and I started to see, you know, how they were structured. And um, and uh, and I actually, you know, used to participate or have, have participated in, in more than 300 capital raisings over the years. Um, but all the while as I've looked at it, and, and I've actually personally done okay out of it, but I've looked at it and just seen how overall retail shareholders as a class have literally been diluted out of probably, if you added it all up now, it would probably be sort of 15 to $20 billion if you combine the, the GFC raisings and, um, and all the raisings we've seen in the recent few weeks where another, you know, probably north of $2 billion has been diluted away from retail shareholders. And the, the two ways that primarily happens are Big institutional placements where the company just allocates shares to institutions and then retail shareholders not participating or not being allowed to participate in any retail offer which comes at the same time, whether that's a pro rata renounceable or whether that's called a share purchase plan which follows after uh, the institutional placement. So the biggest loser in the whole system is the retail shareholder who does nothing who doesn't open the mail, who doesn't choose to participate. And sadly, that is a majority of retail shareholders in virtually every single capital raising deal. So um, they're not being looked after. And the only way you can protect their interests is if you make a capital raising pro rata and renounceable. And we literally haven't seen a single one of those in the last 10 weeks, as everyone's just been doing insider selective deals with institutions and then following up with a much smaller offer for retail shareholders, more than half of whom don't choose to participate, and many of whom who do participate are getting substantially scaled back in the allocations. Yeah, I think just uh, for our listeners' sake, I think one thing that they should be aware of is when you buy a share in a company, you fill out your details on the registry, and I always make sure I tick the email communications box because you don't want these kinds of share purchase plan documents or capital raising documents which are which are always time limited to arrive in the mail too late for you to attend to so that's an important thing as well but but why i guess i, I scratch my head Stephen, in this in these kinds of times why would a company not try and raise as much money as it can why would it why would it limit the amount of money it's trying to raise from retail shareholders well, because I guess it's the fundamental conflict of interest of the investment bankers who, who come along and talk to the company and tell them, you need to raise money, there's a, there's a pandemic, you need to raise as much as you possibly can, as quickly as you can. 
And that's only from institutional shareholders because the system allows them to raise, you know, four, within 48 hours, you can raise, you know, with these new rules, up to 25% of the shares in the company can be issued in 48 hours. So the investment banks typically get paid one and a half to 2% fee. So they say to the boards, you know, raise a billion dollars. In NAB's case, National Australia Bank's case, raise $3 billion. And then they say, oh, you, well, you've got everything you need. So you better give something to retail shareholders. So they then offered them a token amount in the share purchase plan. So in the case of NAB, they said, oh, 500 million for our retail shareholders. Because we've already raised everything we want from the big end of town. So that's the biggest problem, is the, is the investment banks conflicted by the fees they get. They get no fees out of retail. So they tell the boards to focus the raising primarily on the big end of town because it can be done quickly. And then retail just gets a little token offer after the after the event, and um, and often gets scaled back and um, and and diluted as a class. In the case of NAB, retail shareholders own 48% of the bank, and in the end, they're only given 1.25 billion of the capital raising, which which was expanded to 4.25 billion. So they initially said it's going to be 500 million, then they lifted it to 1.25 billion dollars after 2.9 billion dollars was applied for by retail shareholders. So they got deluged by 115,000 shareholders or 25% of the shareholders, and then they scaled them back by more than half. Meanwhile, the biggest losers were the 75% of NAB shareholders. That's 460,000 individual investors who didn't even apply for the shares, which were heavily discounted, and they got diluted badly. So so I think from my experience, every every retail raising is always scaled back but but why do companies do that why wouldn't they just allow all, all the retail shareholders to obtain the number of shares that they wanted to well i guess they've already over raised or they've already raised what they think they need from institutions so they don't want to over raise is the phrase that they use um, and the other thing i think was that they that asic doubled the amount that can be raised from a share purchase plan last year from individual investors they doubled it from fifteen thousand to thirty thousand. So that increased the capacity of retail shareholders to actually deluge a company with applications, 30,000 from each shareholder. But the boards didn't adjust their expectations. So they kept on setting limits, which were ridiculously low. I mean, you see, in the case of NAB, if every shareholder had applied for $30,000, that would have been $18 billion. But they said, we only want $500 million. So that was where they basically assume their shareholders are not going to be rational and not going to take up the offer. And then when they get deluged, they usually expand it by a little bit, but they rarely say we're going to take the lot. And uh, and that's been a very common phenomenon where you know, Ramsey Healthcare, Cochlear, Lendlease, Newcrest, Babcorp, they've all expanded what they initially said the cap was, but then they've still done quite a hefty refund. And all up, there's been now close to $3 billion of funds refunded to retail shareholders where the boards probably should have just accepted the lot. Yes, exactly. So uh, it, I guess it would be. I'm kind of interested as to why there hasn't been a class action in this in this space. Because if you look at uh, your example with NAB, where retail shareholders are about 50-50 with institutional shareholders, but the institutional shareholders get a clear advantage. I mean, that's a material a material loss of. Uh, potential upside for the retail shareholders. I, I'm wondering why there hasn't been a class action in this space. Well, I guess it's because the law is there and the law says that a company can do uh, you know, a 25% placement uh, and the law says they can then choose to do a share purchase plan or not. I mean, they're not obliged to do it. So the real 
crime here is in the fact that Australia has an anything goes capital raising system where boards can issue shares on a non pro rata basis um, it, to both institutions and to retail shareholders. I mean, for instance, it's unfair that someone like me can apply for $30,000 worth of shares when I might only own $50 or $100 worth of stock, yet someone who owns $2 million worth of shares is also being offered a chance to buy $30,000. So the whole system with the, the placement to start with, it should, it should be pro rata, but it's not. They can issue the stock to whoever they like. And then with the share purchase plan, it's not pro rata as well. So that's why the system we should have, which is which is called a patrio model, which is which is basically a pro rata, uh, renounceable, tradable rights issue, where you can sell your rights off on the market, or you can be compensated for your rights with an auction for the for the people who don't participate. That's the fairest way to raise money. But the quick and dirty placement is easier. It's less risky. It's faster. And that's why they do it for the big end of town and then they have to follow up with retail. But the law doesn't say they have to do it and the law says they can scale back as much as they like. So the law mm. is an ass, basically, mm. and it allows retail shareholders to get ripped off blind. Yeah. And I think the other other interesting thing, which uh, may not be that known, is that on the institutional side, the institution doesn't have to be an existing shareholder to take part in the raising. But on the retail side... You must be on the books of this before the raising is announced to to buy any shares in the raising. That is exactly right, and that is a very big difference. A placement is basically they can give it to non-shareholders. A share purchase plan they can only give it to existing shareholders. So that that is a big difference. But in neither case is it pro rata. So, mm. um, but you know, there's more flexibility for the placement because they can they can literally just give it to whoever they like. So, um, you know, you've seen companies give, you know, placing 20% of the company with a non-shareholder. So from a property rights point of view, it really is quite offensive. But if you own, if you own a house and all of a sudden someone can sell 20% of your house to someone else without giving you the chance to keep your relative position in the company, you know, that's why it's unfair. And that's why the British system, which limits placements to no more than 5% of the company, is a much better system where they really do respect the property rights of uh, retail investors or of all investors to retain their relative position in, in the company. And if they can't retain it, to be compensated by the sale of their rights to, a, to another party. Mm. So I guess this raises the, the, the concept of dilution. Uh, for people who may not have thought about this too much already, what I can understand how dilution could be... Uh, a concern for, say, someone who owns 20% in the company because they they will have less voting rights if if they get diluted by a raising. But what about your average retail shareholder? What what do they miss out on if they're diluted? Well, I mean, you basically lose a percentage share of the company. So, And it's best to talk about retail shareholders and dilution in retail as a class of shareholders because most retail shareholders who do attempt to participate in a share purchase plan they are often given their relative position in the company. So they, are, they often do okay. The problem is with the majority who don't participate. So they are the ones who are being diluted collectively. Um, so in the case of, of, of Cochlear, I mean, the Cochlear um, you know, share purchase plan was 30% in the money, yet some 47% of the shareholders, or sorry, 57% of the shareholders didn't even apply for it. So they got diluted collectively and out of many, many tens of millions of dollars because the price that they were offered at was only 140. It was a very discounted placement price. 
and then the share purchase plan was at the same terms. But if you couldn't get into it or if you didn't actually even apply for it, all these new shares have been issued at 140 when the stock's trading at 180. If those shares hadn't been issued, your stock would have been trading at closer to 190 because what happens is the discounted issue of new shares is what dilutes the people who don't get in on the ground floor in those discounted offers. Yeah. Uh, so what what should our listeners do if they're confronted by a, a share purchase plan or a raising? So say, say there's a shareholder out there who's listening to this who was a NAB shareholder and uh, they didn't really know what to do or understand, what, what what should they do? Is there a rule of thumb that you follow? Do you try and do some analysis on the deal or the company, first of all, before partaking, or do you always just partake? Um, look, the most important thing is to make sure you are being informed about the offer. There's many, many tens of thousands of shareholders who are trusting their super fund or their accountant or their fund manager or their financial planner to manage their share portfolio or through wrap accounts with, with fund managers. And the system is not looking after them because the material is not actually being passed through to them to actually make the decision. So the very first thing you should do as a retail shareholder is to ensure that you are informed of any capital raising that is being done by any stock that you own. Once you are informed, and I'm different to you, Tony, I choose to get things by the snail mail. Um, so I, because the documents, you know, come in the mail and I open them up and I, and I keep track of them that way. Then what you do is you, you keep a log of them and you wait until the last day or two and you see if it's in the money. So basically, you know, if it's, if it's in the money, if the, the offer's at a certain price and the shares are trading at 5 or 10% more, then, you know, you should throw the kitchen sink at it. You should apply for the full $30,000. If you've got a financing challenge with that, some people like to sell some of their existing shares to fund the purchase of the new shares Although the risk with that is that you might get scaled back if there's a scale back and then you finish up with less shares than you wanted to have. But I've had to borrow $150,000 uh, from family and friends in, the, in this last 10-week uh, uh, period to be able to keep up with applying for the various offers. So a, a fi finance is actually quite a challenge. So you should have the margin loan ready or the ability to access finance so that you can go in on, on an offer and then obviously you don't necessarily always need to retain the full 30000 You need to keep your portfolio balanced. So sometimes you might sell down and then, and then buy more. But if it's in the money, you should definitely not ignore it. You should apply for some of it. You might only apply for 5000 but do not ignore it if it is in the money because you're just leaving money on the table for someone else and the majority of people are ignoring them and they are not acting rationally and they are being diluted. So I guess I have a, a fundamental question about the investment in capital raisings. Aren't the companies who are raising capital fundamentally bad companies? Aren't they, aren't they companies who need more cash to survive during recessions? Well, yes. And this is one of the problems with um, uh, Australia's franking credit system is that it, it gives an incentive for companies to maximise their dividend payouts. And that often leaves their balance sheets with a bit too much debt or not enough cash capacity to deal with a downturn. So when we had the GFC, we had $100 billion of capital raisings. Now we've had the, the COVID-19 hit and companies just weren't prepared for it. And so they had to desperately raise money at a discount. So a company like Webjet, its shares were trading at $10 in January. And then all of a sudden it did a, a massively discounted $346 million capital raising at $1.70. So a massive discount. 
And of course, the share price now has, has bounced back to be more than $4. So, um, you know, anyone who bought those shares at 170 has made a fortune, but the, the majority of shareholders didn't get to buy those shares. They chose not to, or they didn't receive the placement. So they've been heavily diluted. So I think that the likes of Webjet raised too much at too cheap a price. And you're right, that mm. if you do need to raise money in a crisis, you are fundamentally in a vulnerable position. And the negotiating terms with the investment bankers who underwrite it are usually unfavourable. And literally every single one of the 50 capital raisings we've seen, the big ones above 20 million in the last 10 weeks, is in the money with the exception of Metcash. So anyone who supported capital raisings in a crisis has made good money. You know, the average is now sort of, you know, 30 40%. Um, and and they've overraised many of these companies. They didn't need to raise that much. Every extra dollar raised was increased dilution for those who didn't participate. And of course, the investment banks have an incentive to get paid two percent of what's raised, so they mm. recommend overraising, <laughs> and uh, they negotiate the price as low as possible. And too many weak boards should have said no to the investment banks. We're not going to raise money in a crisis because we're giving our stock away far too cheaply. I guess that's a. You've raised a couple of interesting points there. One is that share prices normally do go up after a capital raising, which is kind of a strange thing. If it's a company that needs money, you wouldn't think it would be a, a great investment. But I guess it's it's money because in the institutional side of the raising, there's an underwriter, and the underwriter gets to set a price, and they try and de-risk their underwriting by setting that price as low as possible. Could you maybe just expand on that? Thanks, so our listeners can understand that. Yeah, so if you want to get a, an underwritten capital raising away, you have to negotiate a deal with an investment bank and you know, Macquarie, UBS, City, Goldman Sachs, uh, JP Morgan have been the big five in the last uh, 10 weeks. And so you negotiate a fee whereby if, if the institutions won't give you the money, the investment bank will. So effectively, it gives insurance to the boards. So there's a negotiation where the investment banks want to make the price as low as possible so that they, if, if it does flop, they've got some room to move. They won't be left with... Uh, with out-of-the-money stock, and um, and the boards want certainty. So, but for me, it's been the biggest waste of 400 million. <laughs> and these investment banks are basically overpaid telemarketers, because basically, what happens is you've got 24 hours to do the raising, and you should just go out there and say to your shareholders and everyone else, who wants to buy our stock and sell it for the highest possible price. You don't need to have it underwritten at all, let alone underwritten at a fixed discounted price. But the biggest thing that's been missing this, this deluge of raisings has been what's called price discovery. Boards have not said to the investment banks, go out there and conduct an auction and sell off our shares at the highest possible mm. price you can get in a blind auction, effectively. Instead, mm. they go for a fixed price. So I'm waiting for, for someone to do what Macquarie normally does when it raises money, where it doesn't have an underwriter because it knows you're wasting money on underwriters for itself. And you do a, what's called a book build to maximise the price and minimise the mm. discount. And so we haven't seen that. And basically, the investment banks have creamed $400 million off Australian public company investors because incompetent boards have been too scared to go out there with a, with a non-underwritten offer for fear of somehow not, you know, not, not getting the right price or not getting the deal away. And they've been played off a break just like what happened during the GFC when hardly any stock finished up in the hands of the underwriters. And so, you know, it's just very disappointing that the smartest boys in the room from Wall Street 
have, have ripped off basically retail shareholders and companies as a whole with these these unnecessary two percent fees on every deal. I mean, National Australia Bank paid thirty nine million dollars to Macquarie and Goldman Sachs to underwrite its three billion dollar raising, which was a twenty four hour risk. They got thirty nine million dollars mm. for twenty four hours of risk on a heavily and discounted offer that was always going to get away. And if it didn't get away for the instos, there's plenty of retail shareholders who would have bought the stock at a discount too. Oh, that's right. I'm waiting for a company to come out and say, we're not doing a placement. We're just going to do a share purchase plan at a 5% discount to market. I mean, if ANZ or Commonwealth Bank did that, they would get billions through the door. But the investment banks don't want that because they don't get a fee and the boards don't like waiting for, you know, possibly... Uh, th three or four weeks to get the money and have the uncertainty of, well, what's the, what's the market going to do? Is it going to go up? Is it going to go down? Do you think there's another dimension there too, though, that, you know, uh, particularly a big company, do you think that they prefer to deal with institutional shareholders than retail shareholders? Look, they they find them easier. I mean, I had an email with, with Newcrest, the big gold miner, and I said, you know, you're not looking after your retail shareholders. And the guy came back and said, well, we've got 57 institutions who together own... 92, 92% of the company. So, you know, they know who owns them. They, they can deal with them. They, they know who they are. The beauty about retail shareholders is we are sticky and we are loyal. So we don't churn and burn like so many of the institutions do. We're reliable. So we're not going to sell out to a corporate raider. So I think we need to change the culture. We are the greatest retail shareholding base in the world, 7 million shareholders. As we've shown this season, we've got an enormous capacity to raise capital and we're loyal and we're keen to invest. We just need the companies to stop doing all these placements and start doing retail first capital raisings. Mm. So, so getting back to that whole idea of being a retail investor and and participating in these things, you've, you've got to be a shareholder in the company before they announce the raising, really, don't you? So the only way to do that is to do it the way you do, which is to take small stakes in a lot of companies. Or do you do any sort of analysis to try and predict who might be up for a raising in the future? Yeah, that, that, that's what you do do if there's press reports or speculation. So at the moment, you know, if I was to rattle off a few stocks that are speculated to do a raising, I'd say probably, you know, Centre Group, uh, the casino companies, um, you know, uh, Tabcor Crown, Star Entertainment, um, you know, Qantas. You know, how long can they handle um, uh, with the uh, with the the shutdown? Down or EDI? It's got a bit too much debt. So, look, you can read the press and you can you can see the speculation. Um, and so, I often will just pick up a few shares in a in a stock which is tipped to raise uh, to raise capital. But if you start doing too much of that, you finish up with a big unwieldy portfolio. And often you'll get scaled back to not many if you don't own many shares. And one other little change that happened last year is you can no longer finish up with an unmarketable parcel of shares through Comsec. So they won't allow you to transfer an unmarketable parcel between accounts and they won't allow you to sell down and only leave an unmarketable parcel. So if you're getting onto a register for the first time, $500 is the, is the minimum and you can't get below that. Uh, whereas I was able to in the past by buying $500 and then transferring a small amount to a different account and then selling the balance because I don't have a lot of lot of capital. So I can't afford to have $500 worth of stocks in 500 companies. So I had to have a capital light approach uh, initially when I set this up. What, what kind of returns have you been getting through this large portfolio of small shareholdings? Well, I think you have a, you had a good, a good harvest during the GFC. 
So um, I think it was probably a couple of hundred thousand during the GFC, and then um, and then it sort of just trickles along at maybe ten or fifteen thousand a year uh, in the last sort of twelve or thirteen years. So it hardly pays for the you know the account, you know the all the administration and, and bookkeeping with having five hundred holdings. Uh, but the last ten weeks, I think it's probably been a bit over twenty thousand um, in in capital gains from participating in in um, SPP offers. So look, you know. I sort of say it is, you know, I'm, I'm primarily doing it as a shareholder activist to uh, to advocate for retail shareholders, but to fund a few flights interstate to go to AGMs, that sort of stuff, if I can try and make a little bit along along the way, um, mm -hmm. then that actually sort of pays for all the admin. But I, I wouldn't recommend it as a sort of a, as a, a genuine investment strategy. And it only really is relevant when you get a deluge of offers as in now, mm -hmm. and then you've got to go to the trouble of getting on the registers and frankly i'm getting scaled back and fair enough too i'm getting quite heavily scaled back so everyone from you know cochlear to ramsey to lendlease and newcrest and nab have all had very heavy scale backs of sort of you know 90 95 which is actually i actually support that because you should give the bigger shareholders the bigger holding so you only really um make a profit when with a small holding when it's an uncapped spp and increasingly we're seeing less and less of them because companies are not saying they want to raise much from an SPP and because of the increase to 30,000 has meant that more money is coming through the door every time there is an SPP go, that goes out to all the shareholders. Mm, yeah. And, and, you know, I'm glad you are funding what you're doing because you have been a great advocate for retail shareholders and you listening to you and reading your writings over the years, you've certainly opened my eyes about some of these things as well. So it's, it's a great job you do. Well, it's just a sort of funny in a way. I actually reckon in a weird way I, I, I cost myself, whenever I write to a company and put the position, I reckon they often go, oh, how many shares has that guy got? <laughs> and actually, I, I find that if I don't talk to a company, they're often a bit more generous. But overall, I mean, overall, my goal is to basically stand in the shoes of a retail shareholder. And if you can maximise the overall offer, then retail shareholders will do better. So every time there's a capital raising where they lift the cap, where you write to them, you put pressure on them, you threaten to run for the board. Um, so when Newcrest said we're only going to raise 100 million, when 300 million came through the door and they expanded it to 200 million, well, the, the extra 100 million that they did under pressure literally generated $20 million of profit for retail shareholders. I got scaled back to zero on, on oh. that particular deal. So I look at it and say, as long as my position is aligned with retail shareholders as a whole, and as long as I can try and advocate for maximum allocations to retail, whilst also having the overall preferred position of saying pro rata is actually fairest, which it is. So I always say you should be raising by pro rata. That is the fairest. Uh, but, you know, um, there's still too many companies that are doing big placements and tiny SPPs, and that is shafting all retail shareholders. And that's where you just got to put the pressure on for companies to uh, to stop doing that. Mm, well, well, thank you for advocating on our behalf, and and for our listeners, if you if you don't uh, go go across and read Stephen in Eureka Report or for other platforms, you should just to to support him and what he does. Uh, Cam, I think I know, I've gone through all my questions on capital raisings, but I wondered whether we should give Stephen a chance to talk about some of his other passions, like uh, maybe your anti pokies campaigning as well. How's that going? Well, I mean, it's a bit of a shame that New South Wales have just reopened this week because, uh, you know, we were saving $38 million a day nationally with the uh, 5,000 pokies venues being shut down. So still very animated about the fact that we're the world's biggest gamblers with uh, $25 billion a year in losses. 
And um, you know, thank goodness, uh, one of the best things that came out of the pandemic was actually that shutdown. Um, but it's disappointing to see it reopening now. And we have seen an increase in online gambling. So uh, but look, hopefully there's quite a few gamblers who will, having broken the habit, being forced by the government since March 23, will actually stay off the pokies uh, permanently and we won't see those record $14 billion a year in pokies losses nationally, which is just extraordinary if you think about that, $14 billion every year out of $25 billion nationally on gambling, more than any other company uh, country in the world in per capita terms. But how many of those mm. people just took that money and went and bought Afterpay? Well, if they did, they did very well. I mean, Afterpay yeah. went from you know, $8 to $50. Yeah. Um, so, um, I mean, I think I think there was a bit more sort of, you know, open brackets, open quotes, gambling on the stock market um, during the pandemic. Certainly trading was up and new accounts were up. Um, but I, I think it's actually a different class of gambler. It's not, it's not the... Uh, it's not the pokies player who is suddenly getting into the share market. I think it's more likely the um, uh, the sports gambler on their phone who uh, doesn't have sport to gamble on and decides to have a punt on the market instead. Mm. Right. They went and bought Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are your thoughts, Stephen, on the review of class action law that's being undertaken at the moment? Look, I, uh, I support class actions. I think that we've had a pretty weak corporate regulator over the years uh, in ASIC and the class action industry, including the litigation funders, have done a great job in privately going after corporate malfeasance. And so um, I'm disappointed the government's sort of conducting these reviews and trying to put the screws on class actions because we've been one of the best markets in the world for having successful class actions. I mean, you know... If you do the wrong thing, you'll get done over. And uh, the likes of Morris Blackburn have, have had more than $2 billion of settlements with um, with uh, public companies just for mis hiding bad news, basically, is the number one thing. But also, they also work in other areas, whether it's live exports or uh, you know defence or, or the dam issue in Queensland. There's been lots and lots of you know, robo-debt. Robo so I think that it, there is a good access to justice argument for allowing class actions, and the system's working pretty well in Australia, and I'm disappointed the government's seemingly going after them now uh, on behalf of uh, big business. Isn't it interesting, though, that big business, of course, has been pushing for the review because, you know, their, their uh, indemnity insurance fees have skyrocketed over the last five or so years. Uh, so it's almost like the class actions are so successful they need to be shut down, whereas... The solution might be to get better boards for our uh, for our companies. Well, that's right. Tell the truth and don't rip people off. If you can do, you know, that's what the regulators <laughs> are meant to stop. But uh, yeah, so I, I think they've been a very important thing about keeping corporates honest and uh, and holding them to account. So uh, you'd rather not have them because you want the corporates to behave themselves. But uh, that's just the fa fact of life is that too often they don't. And so you need you need redress. And and it's been very successful at the shareholder level in the last few years gets back mm. to my book the psychopath epidemic mm. which while you two were talking i looked up page 54 it says an experienced journalist once explained why financial journalists don't tend to ask probing questions at annual general meetings you were that experienced journalist uh, Stephen. so for some reason your name didn't make it into the uh, final draft but that's all about you <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I mean, journalists don't ask questions at annual meetings, unfortunately, because of course they're not shareholders. So um, that was the original reason I got into it was that I could be a journalist and I could ask questions of boards when they would normally tell me to get stuffed and not not answer my questions or give me access every other day of the year. You know, like the Kerry Packer or Rupert Murdoch or Frank Lowy 
wouldn't give me the time of day, but they had to at the AGM if I was a shareholder. Uh, and that was partly why I actually bought the shares and started doing that, uh, going on to AGMs and asking a few curly questions. And of course, now with the with the COVID nineteen pandemic, the AG we've just been through AGM season, and there's been no shareholders in attendance. Well, that's right. There's, there's been a hybrid, or well, not even hybrid AGMs, virtual AGMs, where you can ask questions online, usually typed in, but sometimes they allow oral questions, like a Rio Tinto. And um, I didn't actually get involved in too many of them. And uh, there was certainly less accountability. But going forward, if we can have hybrid AGMs where you can ask them at the AGM itself physically or you can be beamed in on the telephone, that will increase scrutiny, that will increase access, that will hopefully lo lower my travel cost. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that would be a, an excellent dividend to come out of this that uh, we've shown that hybrid online AGMs with questions and with online voting can actually happen and we should go with that whilst also maintaining the physical AGM as a mandatory feature in Australia, unlike the US where they do allow online only AGMs. And of course, if it's online, it's, I guess, almost certainly recorded, which has been another issue with Australian AGMs that they don't often, or some of them, some companies don't put out a recording of their AGM after it occurs. They often hide that. Jerry Harvey at Harvey Norman last year, I ran for the board. He said all these extraordinary things and then he refused to release a transcript or audio recording and refused to webcast it. So, yes, it should be mandatory webcasting, mandatory recording and mandatory transcript provision. Um, but you're right, too many companies, they don't like what's said at the AGM, so they don't go out of their way to make sure there's no record of it or a, a replication of what's said. Um, and you had to be in the room to hear it, which is hardly a system where you share information with as many shareholders as possible. Mm, it's incredible, isn't it? Yes. Mm. Well, Cam, I'm out of questions. It's been a fascinating dis discussion, and I'm really happy to have uh, had Stephen on the show. Is there anything else you want to add to that at all, either of you? Any final things you want to stick in, Stephen? Anything you want to plug? No, I'm, I'm pretty much done. No, I think, um, you know, I appreciate you taking interest in this, and, um, you know, we need to educate our retail shareholders to be vigilant, to take up uh, capital raisings, because at the moment they're getting ripped off blind by not participating, and it's very disappointing. Terrific. All right, well, thanks again, mate. I hope you uh, stay safe. Great. All right, mate. Have a good day, guys. You too, Steve. Thanks. Cheers. See you. Bye.